Welcome back to another episode of The Geek Whispers. I'm Matt Brender. And I'm Amy Lewis. And I'm John Mark Troyer. And we are pleased to be dialed into yet another fantastic Skype line with friends and foes. No, just kidding. Just a, a wonderful guest. Kurt, would you mind introducing yourself to everyone? Yes. Um, my name is Kurt Collins. Um, I work with the enterprise organization, enterprise platform provider, actually, um, named Built.io. Um, I manage partnerships and uh, developer evangelism for the company. Um, luckily, I am truly blessed to be based out of Paris, France. And I have also, um, I'm also the co-founder of a nonprofit named The Hidden Genius Project, uh, which uh, mentors young black youth and teaches them how to code. And we're going to dig into all of those topics um, about your work as an evangelist, about mentoring uh, youths through your foundation, and then a little bit about your own personal journey. So why don't we start with, uh, tell us a little bit more about what you're doing this week. I know you're on site with an event coming up. Uh, actually, yes. Um, I am currently in sunny San Jose, California um, at the API World Conference put on by uh, the people at Dev Network. And um, this one is, uh, this one's interesting to me because um, APIs are the next big thing. Uh, some would argue that they were the last big thing, but, um, but to me, they are the next big thing because um, we still haven't even begun to scratch the surface of all the different potential APIs that are out there. Right now, programmable web on, only has about 15 or 20,000 APIs tracked. Um, and when you when you put that in context, um, you know the uh, twenty thousand APIs tracked around the world, and just think about the number of people that that are in the United States alone. That's three hundred fifty million. In my head, uh, fifteen years from now, everybody's going to have their own personal API. So, um, so to think about the fact that there are only twenty thousand APIs being tracked by programmable web at this point in time, but in fifteen years. As individuals, we might have to have our own personal APIs in order to just interact with the cities that we live in or the cars that we drive or anything like that. Um, then we really are at the beginning of the API economy and uh, not anywhere in the middle. Well, I hope we each have our own instance of a similar API and not our own personally crafted APIs because that could be a mess. But I'm with you. <laughs> if it doesn't have an API, it really doesn't exist at this point. Yeah, and when and when you think about the things that are coming down the pike, um, like connected cities and uh, connected spaces in general, how how our environment interacts with us uh, is becoming more and more important. And right now, we don't have a solution for that. And you're right; it should be our own instance of an API. But there will be those intrepid young geeks out there who will create their own API for themselves because um, because they have some non-standard payment scheme, for instance, like Bitcoin, that they that they need to integrate and so on and so forth. So, um, so I, I think I think uh, just coming up with a standard for a personal API is fascinating. And so, anytime I go to these API conferences, I look for the I look for the bellwethers um, for when that might be approaching, when that time might be approaching. So for the the nerds of us out there that haven't dug into an API, I have to recommend a peer podcast called Data Knots. In episode 49, they went into cracking the nut on APIs in great detail, talking about application programming interfaces and the client libraries that you interact with them. So we won't dig any more into that here. But um, Kurt, so what is your role like as a developer evangelist uh, prepping for a conference? What are you doing? Like, what, what are you responsible for? 
Um, so one of the one of the interesting things about my job is that I'm actually both a developer evangelist and a um, business development professional as well. So um, so I do partnerships and I do developer evangelism, and I I, I call that out because. Um, in the industry right now, there's a controversy about the value of developer evangelists. Um, in general, Do tell. Uh, yeah, there is. I mean, in, in general, developer evangelists are um, just a pure developer evangelist. It's considered kind of like a, a lead, a source of leads, as well as a sales engineer, right? That the combination of the two of those things is kind of what a developer evangelist is, um, because they are the technical person who is oftentimes customer facing, but they come from a place of authenticity because they are, you know, they are or were developers. And in theory, um, they don't have a quota. They don't have a sales quota or anything like that. So they're not necessarily trying to push their product on you from a sales perspective. They're trying to help you find a solution to whatever problem it is that you have. That's what a developer evangelist is supposed to be. Right, and I have um, to admit, Kurt, um, I've been giving that job title, well, tech evangelist in general, a hard time lately, because I worry for people in it that, uh, and and Matt, to take a quote from you, that the the risk is in, on the org chart. You're a party of one, so I'm really intrigued yeah. by your kind of dual role of it's almost like, well, I'm a developer, uh, well, I'm an evangelist, but I work on business development too, because business development you always get a pass because people are like, oh. I know what he does for a living. Whereas yeah. evangelist people raise the eyebrow at you. Yes. And it, it's, it's um, the, the business development, the, the tech evangelist part allows me to talk to developers easily, right? Because at least another developer can, can walk up to me and say, Hey, can we talk about this? You know, how you guys work with angular, or how you guys work with react. Um, and I, and I can give them a, a direct response that may or may not include, sorry, we don't really do anything with, any of those, but you should go talk to those guys over there. So that, that side of my job is actually really nice. Um, uh, the other side of my job is nice too, because when it comes to technology in general, when it comes to forming technology partnerships, I can't sit down in a meeting with somebody and say, um, listen, I don't know exactly how your technology works, but I'm going to bring in this other guy to tell you how it works um, and how we might work together. I lose um, I lose all kinds of credibility in saying that, right? I'm, I, 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 I turn out to be just the money guy at that point in time. I am stunned by the, uh, the raw fashion challenge here. You have to have the suit, the hoodie, and you live in Paris. So For the, rec- for the record, <laughs> I have the blazer, the hoodie, and a <laughs> pair of jeans. <laughs> so it, it works out. I can, I, can, uh, I can blend in like a good weave. so kurt how how does that work at the office do people understand where you fit organizationally or do you find yourself pulled between some demand gen content creation things that might be more marketing some engineering tasks and then some business development um i would say that in any job not just in mine um, you have to you as an individual have to define your role um and uh, that's obviously something that is a lot easier to do later on in your career than, you know, when you first get out of college. But, um, but you know, there, I, I do bleed over into marketing. For instance, um, I write a number of posts for different websites. Um, I, I've written for VentureBeat and some of the others that you've probably heard of. So 
there's that. I bleed over into marketing, but I try to make sure that my marketing person understands that um, I'm taking direction from, from them as opposed to me giving them direction. Um, and, and, uh, and I bleed over into sales uh, because I get pulled into sales calls all the time. Um, and, and that's perfectly fine. Uh, and then I also, but my job is purely to build um, hopefully long-term revenue generating partnerships with companies based on our technology platforms, right? That's, that's my job. And, and if I don't feel as if there is a, um, there's a fit between us and another company that maybe, you know, we might be being pushed towards internally, then I just tell them, guys, there's nothing we can do with these people, you know? Um, because again, that's the authenticity side of my job, which is, yeah, absolutely. You got to keep evangelist. it. Yeah. Yeah. So John, you're not always the biggest fan of technical, a technical evangelist job titles. What do you think of the hybrid role? Um, but from the angle of partnering and using that, you know, basically the platform of being an evangelist to connect the dots with other organizations. Oh, I think it makes a huge amount of sense. What we see is Kurt is that the evangelist has a problem when they are not connected back to the business and often, I don't know that 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 shows up in different ways, um, but you know the ones that we see are successful are either kind of very technical tech marketing, doing content. They are pre or, or some of them are pre or post sales, uh, working with sales teams. Uh, I think we think you're the probably the most pure, most pure play alliance person we've talked to on the podcast, but I've heard of others. Uh, we just recently interviewed a, a friend of the podcast, Frank Deniman. He was definitely working pre-sales with the sales team. Um, but all the successful ones we've seen are, are connected to the business. If you're just, um, you know, standing up and, and banging pots and pans together, and you know, whether that's on social media or at events, and just kind of, you're, if you're just the hype man, that doesn't work, right? You have to be connected some way to driving business ROI. So and great. yeah and and I, I I completely agree with that actually I think that's why the hybrid role works and I, I'm I'm thankful that um uh, that my C suite actually let me experiment with this um, because it, from a from a pure business perspective just a, a your regular old developer evangelist is a cost center is often seen as a cost center and not as a um, and not as a revenue driver. Right. Um, and that makes it tough for any executive team to really go in and look at that and say, um, yes, let me hire more DEs uh, because it, they they lend themselves more towards a marketing center as opposed to um, a revenue driver. And so with marketing, you're often thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to be spending thirty thousand dollars a week on conferences or whatever. Um, but if you tie in the partnerships role, then you can then you can essentially say, Listen, there's long-term revenue potential for having a developer evangelist on board. Um, it doesn't. It isn't necessarily immediate. It isn't a sales type position, um, but it is uh, something where I can start to see a, a developer evangelist as a revenue driver as opposed to a cost thing. I think that's a topic we haven't dug into much on the Geek Whispers: the difference between being a cost center and a um, wait. What's the opposite of that? I just. A revenue driver. <laughs> a revenue driver. You can tell no, which I, side of the fence I'm on. <laughs> yeah, well, that's uh, yes, exactly. Because well, that's the age-old battle between marketing and sales as well. You know. Yep. So I think developer evangelist becomes an even easier target because when you are niche within marketing, um, you really paint the target on yourself. If you're not, 
exactly what we've said a million times. You, you've got to, it, no title is, is about just hand waving. It's got to be tied back to the business. Um, the challenge, and again, sort of tying it back maybe into the mentorship question a little bit of, like you said, how do you, if people come to you, if they want this kind of coaching, do you, do you advise them going down this path or do you do it with a caveat? Meaning here's how you do it, but don't paint this target on yourself. Make sure that you're tied to the business. Um, well, one, uh, you know, I've had, um, I've only recently started mentoring people in this particular role because I myself was an experiment in the hybrid role, um, at Built.io. And again, I thank I thank them for letting me try it. Um, but the, the caveat that I would say is that, um, you have to love both because if you don't love both things, then you're really, um, you're you're cutting your nose to spite your face, as my mother would say. Um, <laughs> it's just uh, you, you have to you have to look at it and say, I do like making alliances with people. I do like talking. I like the networking events. You know, I like um, I like making sure that my clients are happy and so on and so forth. You, you have to like the personal side of things as much as you like the developer side of things, as much as you like the the code check-ins and the gifs. And, you know, learning about a brand new framework that just came out yesterday and all these other things, if you, and you have to be able to context switch, right? If you can't switch context between a marketing conversation and a, you know, and a pure developer conversation in a matter of minutes, then this isn't the job for you, right? A a lot of people are very much, um, a lot of people are very much uh, right-brained or left-brained, uh, and this is this requires some element of usage on both sides of your brain. Yeah, this is pretty omni-brain work, what we're talking about right now. <laughs> and um, Matt, I feel like that's kind of a thing you have, have advocated for for a long time, both you and John. But I know, Matt, as a practitioner, you've always been a big advocate of don't lose the technical credibility. I've teased you for an age about, you know, the M word and, and a self, being a self-loathing marketer. That, that that credibility, I really like, Kurt, how you put that, that you've got to maintain it. Just made me think of you, Matt. Yeah, uh, the context switching uh, point hits home really hard. I mean, I think today uh, was one of the days I coded more than I PowerPointed for the longest time I can remember. And it's satisfying, um, but like you do have to realize that every other meeting will be related to something that is totally different than what you were doing a moment ago. Um, it. It's enjoyable if you really like the the shifting tides of the day. And Kurt, it sounds like you know you're experimenting with this pretty intentionally. Uh, so that that lined up pretty well with your expectations. Yeah, I mean, for me, I um I started out my career. Uh, I've been programming since I was six years old, and show um, off. <laughs> well, <laughs> back back then it was uh, back then it was copying stuff out of the 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 Commodore sixty four manual. Oh my uh, god, me too. <laughs> that's, you know, that's kind of the way it starts. Uh, you, you copy stuff out, you change a couple of lines of code, and see if everything breaks. And if it doesn't break, then you did something right that day. Um, Go so, to yeah. ten. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but like. At some point in time, I hit I hit my twenties, my late twenties, and I said, my mid to late twenties, and I was like, okay, it's um, uh, I need something different. But all I had to fall back on was my my technology background, was my software engineering background, um, and so I switched to I tried to switch to 
um, to business development. And it took me nine months to find a job uh, that was in business development. And the only way I found one was because um, a, a lovely little company called photobucket.com said, hey, we need a sales engineer. And I said, I don't mind being an SE as long as I'm also in business development. Um, so I, I became the BD slash SE guy. And so I was able to manage both. And ever since then, that's been what I've been doing. Um, that's a really cool transition. Uh, and it's kind of the reverse of many people, I think, um, especially in, in our kind of segment of the market, a lot of people are going from like, um, I guess more of the technology side, but where it's customer facing a lot of SCs, a lot of people that have been exploring that and are trying to get to the coding side. So it's interesting that you had the reverse journey and it's good to confirm that that's also challenging that that switch in careers is, is never just like a, a nice little step up the ladder. Yeah. Actually, Kurt, would you have any advice for a technical person that wants to get more hands on in the business side of their company? Yeah. Um, I mean, my advice there is to cozy up to the salespeople um, and, and you know, help them out as much as possible. The more exposure you get to the client-facing conversations is good because what you'll notice, um, what you notice on the sales side that's different than the technology side is that uh, with the technology side, everything is pretty much black and white. It's pretty much, yes, I can do this. No, I can't do this. It's going to take me 40 hours. Even if you tell me, even if you say it's going to take 30, it's still going to take me 40. Um, and so <laughs> it's all, you know, it, it's all very much, it, it's factually based, right? Um, and with the sales side, it's, it's a perception conversation that you're having with the person on the other end of the phone. Right? It's that conversation of, Yes, we um, listen. We may not be able to do this exactly the way you you want us to do it, but we can achieve the same end results. And so, massaging having having the capability to massage that conversation is not something you necessarily learn in you know in a day or in a week. Um, it's it's one of those things that I learned just by listening in on listening in on sales conversations um, with people when I worked at CNET. Um, listening in our sales conversations with people and uh, honestly just trying to figure out what was the thing that got, um, that got people up in the morning and got, what was the motivation for most people to be in that position? And so if you can, if you can talk to somebody and understand what motivates them, then you've closed the deal. It doesn't matter what that thing is, whether that thing is skydiving or writing 10,000 lines of code in a day. As long as you can understand the motivation, then you can close that deal. It's hmm. trying to understand what that motivation is. That's the really tough part. That's one of the things I just learned from watching salespeople. They were always trying to figure out what were the levers that moved an individual to make a decision to close a deal. Anything in particular about kind of moving from uh, kind of a mo more programming or code-oriented job? I mean, you've talked about being in the you know customer-facing and that actually – I think it's yeah. true. It's a lot of just experience of, of how deal flow goes and how customers think and what your company's approach to solving customer problems is. But was it kind of hard also to put down the crown of like, I'm the programmer? 
<laughs> um, my ego definitely took a hit. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with that. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's honest. That's honest. Wow. Um, but, um, the, the thing about it that was, um, I had to, uh, I had to start over. So much of what you said makes me think about it almost as apprenticeship, because one of the things I'm really struck with is you didn't just accept what was offered to you. You made a counter offer. Um, So you've got a little sales in your blood already to kind of have the guts to ask for these different hybrid roles, which sort of allowed you to to practice um, safely while you're getting paid. I mean, it's the best of all educations, you know, book versus street. It's, it's amazing to get paid while you're learning. Yeah, that's, that's totally true. And and you're right. I have a little bit of sales in my background. My, um, uh, my stepfather was a, was a diplomat. So, um, ah. he, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was lucky in that in dinner that table negotiations did you well. <laughs> exactly. How about if I stay up uh, 10 more minutes? <laughs> um, but I think the, the, the interesting thing was just that um, moving from the technology side of things, the, the hardest thing for me to get my mind or for me to wrap my mind around was that there isn't a solution to every business problem. There is a solution to every technology problem. Given enough time, resources, we will figure out time travel. It's going to happen. It may be 150 years from now, maybe 1,000 years from now. But there is a solution to every technology problem. <laughs> right, the human part versus the technical part. Exactly. exactly. Humans are a lot less predictable. Humans. <laughs> Damn you, humans. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I feel like you brought us down a, a great mentoring path of what should we consider and not consider as we make a transition. Um, why don't we change gears and talk about how you scale that through the foundation you work in? So tell us a little about the foundation. Yeah. So it's um, it's a nonprofit called the Hidden Genius Project, and um, I I was um, I was at a low point in my career um, when this started. I had started a company. Uh, it was the only company I ever wanted to start in my entire life. Um, in case you couldn't tell, I have a personal, uh, I have a personal attachment to things like personal APIs. Um, it was an identity management company. It was a mobile identity management company, actually, and we were trying to gear ourselves towards um, storing identities in the cloud, specifically in DNS. Um, and it didn't work out. Um, and uh, I. Uh, I was trying to figure out what to do next, where to go next. And it was just one of those soul crushing things that happens. And one of my friends approached me and said, Hey, listen, I'm getting a group of people together. We want to talk about building a a summer program for young black youth in Oakland. Uh, Maybe teach them how to code. Uh, Can, you know, can you hop into this conversation? And so that was in April of 2012. And, um, and by June of 2012, we had launched the program, uh, given the kids, uh, we, we had five kids in the program initially. Um, our goal was to make sure that they didn't have to pay for anything. So we gave them brand new, uh, brand new MacBook airs and brand new iPod touches, kind of exactly the same thing you would get if you were just walking into a tech company as an employee. Uh, and, and we taught them, um, we tried to teach them, we tried to teach them object, uh, objective C, and Python that first summer. Um, now, 
long story short, that didn't work out. Her <laughs> <laughs> in your voice, well, like. That might have been an uphill battle. Um, yeah, it was. A, it, it was an uphill battle, but it wasn't an uphill battle for the reasons that you would think. Um, you, you would. You would honestly think that uh, it, it may have been a lack in STEM education and so on and so forth that that made it tough. Um, sure, we had we had some some hurdles to get over there, but one of the one of the things that I've learned about programming uh, in doing it is that it is basically another language, just like a spoken language. If you're, if you're programming in Python, um, you're learning the syntax of that particular language, just as you are if you're learning French, you're learning the grammar and so on and so forth. And so one of the things that was extremely difficult for us to, to do was, um, was make the association between, uh, between spoken language and, um, and technology language. And for us, it was just normal. Like, we do it all the time. We understand what syntax is. We understand what grammar is. We, we're used to that. The tough part with a lot of our youth at the time was that um, their, their spoken English was, was tough. And not spoken English, their written English, actually. The grammatical rules of English were tough for them. Uh, and so trying to make any comparisons to anything that already existed in their life so that they could understand what programming was really like, that was extremely difficult. So one of the one of the things that this that this whole entire process has taught me is that yes, STEM is important, um, science, technology, engineering, and math. It's important, but we have to make sure that the arts is in there as well. Because if you can't speak, you can't program. This is this is uh, tying into this light bulb moment I had just the other day. A friend, um, a friend's kid is super bright, young, into programming. And he's taking, he took Latin already, and now he's taking Japanese. And it seems to be the easiest thing in the world. And of course, kids are like sponges. But it really struck me that, to your point, that if you understand basic language and syntax concepts, you could apply it to anything. And where, in particular for a native English speaker, a non-romance language might be more challenging even than, say, an English speaker speaker picking up, obviously I'm not an English speaker this evening, um, (laughs) picking up French or Spanish, um, you know, would in theory be easier, whereas picking up Mandarin or Japanese would be harder. For him, it was a language, a new language to conquer, just like Python, just like, you know, C Sharp, just like whatever. Um, exactly. It was one more language. So that's amazing. Yeah. And that's, you know, that, that was one of the interesting things that I learned specifically. I didn't, I didn't see it that way um, before uh, being a part of this. Um, but afterwards, I, I'm totally on that bandwagon. Um, and so, you know, now I'm, I'm no longer as deeply involved as I used to be because uh, the program is based out of Oakland and I live in Paris. So that's obviously a, a sure, tiny sure, bit of a barrier. <laughs> um, but the program is doing really well. I mean, we, we got money last year from Google. Um, uh, we, we just recently last week got money from um, the city of Oakland. Uh, so, I mean, um, we're serving hundreds of kids a year now. It's, uh, it's, it's growing really strong. We have an amazing executive director, uh, Brandon Nicholson, who's, uh, who's taken the ideas that we had and just completely run with it in exactly the right way. Um, the thing that was, uh, the, the thing that was key for us was just trying to find those kids who were, um, who were getting left behind. Uh, there, there are social programs out there for, um, for kids who are not doing great at all in life. 
And then there are um, there's obvious support out there for kids who are getting straight A's and are doing amazing things in life. Um, but the kids in the middle, they often just get forgotten. And so um, for us, it was important to see if we could figure out a way to to help those particular kids. And they ended up they ended up pulling me back from um, you know from an episode of depression at the time. Wow. Um, yeah, Kurt, that's incredibly powerful. Like, so what has that taught you as somebody that, I mean, your, your goal as an evangelist, uh, partly is to educate people. Um, has there been any connection to the foundation that's really spanned that gap for you and taught you new ways of com- communicating the value of, of what you bring to your company and what you bring to others? I had to learn how to, teaching is one of the greatest professions in the world, by the way. And we do not give enough respect to our teachers from a monetary level. We don't give enough respect from a lot of different levels to our teachers today. Because in the two years that I was teaching, um, I probably lost more brain cells doing it than in the prior 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) It was exhausting and mind numbing because the the important thing there is trying. It's not that you don't know the material that you're teaching. It's that you have to explain the material in a way that the individual who you're teaching it to is going to comprehend it. And that's, that's almost the same thing as I was trying to say earlier when I said that um, you need to, you need to figure out what a person's motivation is in sales, right? And that's, and that's the thing that's going to end up closing the deal. It's the exact same thing in teaching. You need to figure out what that student's motivation is, and that is what is going to help them understand better. So if somebody really wants to be the next Michael Jordan, then if you can, you know, and this is obviously a very dumbed-down example, but if you can put programming in terms of basketball for them, that ends up being a lot easier for them to understand. And so we did things like, um, we did things like giving them homework that was sports related so that they could, they could look at it and say, oh, okay, this associates with this. Okay, I get this whole Python thing now. Which, uh, ironically, all my kids' math homework, I relate to uh, you know, food-related things, so, which, which surprises no one. But also ties into my extreme jealousy of the fact that you live in Paris now. But I was going to ask the uh, the work life balance question. How do you how do you manage to you're in you're in San Jose now. You fly back and forth. How do you how do you do it all? Um, so work life balance used to be a huge problem for me um, prior to a year and a half ago. I would say um, prior to about two years a year and a half two years ago. And then oddly enough, the thing that made it all come into perspective for me was my family. And I totally sound like a, a greeting card right now. <laughs> um, but hanging out with, um, I, I moved to New York temporarily. My dad, um, my dad used to call me up after work and say, hey, listen, before I get home from work, why don't you and I just grab a drink at the bar? And, um, and so doing that was incredible. Um, spending time with my mom was also incredible. Uh, and so that was great. And now that, now that I'm overseas, um, I see them more than when I saw them, um, more than when I lived in San Francisco, to tell you the truth. And, uh, and so now the work-life balance is a lot better. One of the good things is I get to travel, uh, oftentimes for business, but sometimes 
uh, and this is something I wholeheartedly recommend for everybody, if you can find a job where your location doesn't matter, take that job because I spent a week in Finland at the beginning of August because my goddaughter, um, my goddaughter had her naming ceremony and I was still working. I was working my, you know, 40 to 60 hour weeks, uh, while I was there. But in the evening I was hanging out in Helsinki and it was an amazing experience just to think about blending work and life at the same time. There's almost no other way to do it in tech because tech is kind of all or nothing. You can't really, you can't really do the, you know, the work-life balance thing easily unless you try to figure out a deliberate way to make it happen. That's just what I've had to do. Be deliberate. Wait, I, so, Kurt, I got to push back for a second, though, because I think a lot of people that I've spoken to, and, and I had this personal experience working from home, uh, there's a struggle with keeping things balanced, right? Like uh, being able to close a laptop after... Uh, eight or 10 hours and not just keep it going until the next day and then start that routine again. So what keeps you honest while you're on the road um, before we get too far down the path of thinking like everyone should work from wherever all the time? Um, listen, it, you're right. It's actually not for everybody. It's, um, it requires a, a certain mental state in order to do it. Um, I do work long hours, but I worked long hours when I was uh, when I was working at an office, uh, so that's not any different than before. Um, when I was working out of an office, I would go home and continue to do work. Also, not any different than before. The thing that keeps it different is that um, what what makes it different for me is that you have to be um, you have to be intentional about it, regardless if you're working out of an office or you're working out of home you have to say to yourself, these are my boundaries, right? Um, for instance, one of the things that I'm saying to myself now is that every, every three months, I'm taking three to five days off. And it'll be three to five days where I go do whatever it is I want to do, or I, got, I could travel to a different country, or I could sit on my butt and play PlayStation for four days. Either one, it's a very intentional decision that I made to say, I'm taking three to five days off every three months because I know that I need that now. When I was younger, I didn't know that I needed it. That's brilliant. And that's what I was really hoping you'd hit on. Like, what is your strategy? Because we, we, at the end of the day, we have to basically figure out whatever works for us. And for some people that could be leaving all the time and then taking a large break for you, you figured out you need to break up the year and make sure you hold yourself to that. Um, that yeah. works. I mean, Kurt, yeah. being being remote like that, do you have to make yourself available twenty four seven to home office? And I know the company is actually um, also distributed and, and has a you know a back end. Uh, you've got development office and, and then the front end office, and um, you know, and you're on planes in Europe. So, I mean, how does that all work? Are you on call all the time? Um, no. Uh, if if some if some emergency comes up, then somebody will pick up the phone and they'll give me a call. But outside of that. You know, it's Slack messages that I respond to when I wake up. It's emails that I respond to when I wake up. And even then, um, what I try to do is overlap. Uh, there's a nine-hour time difference between our San Francisco office and where I am. All right, they are nine hours behind me. So their day starts when my day in Europe ends. Um, theoretically, what I try to do is I try to have my, um, I try to have my meetings 
with European companies in the afternoon between mm-hmm. noon and 4 or 5 p.m. By the time I'm done with that, then my team in San Francisco is waking up. Uh, and I can, I can hang out with them for another four to six hours, depending on the day. Uh, and, you know, by around 10, by around 10 to midnight, I'm done. Um, and so my day is about as long as it used to be. Uh, it's a little bit more um, disjointed in some, in, in some ways. But, you know, I, I generally go for about 10 hours from around 1 p.m. to around, you know, 10 or 11 p.m. Um, and that allows me to bleed over a little bit with our office in India and uh, also with our office in San Francisco. And I get both sides of both sides of the world. So pivoting back to your mentorship and, and your foundation, the work you do there, would you recommend the type of work you're doing right now to someone that you were mentoring and, you know, that let's say they worked their way through the programming challenges and, and got addicted the same way you were to your computer at six years old. Would you say, yeah, pursue this evangelist slash other thing uh, and, and do, do it the way you're doing it? Um, I, I would. Um, in fact, I, I, I recently did, uh, but I wouldn't recommend it for everybody. Um, there's, there's one young man who was in our first class of the Hidden Genius Project. Um, programming isn't what he wants to do solely. He's very outgoing and approachable and an incredibly nice guy. And so, you know, he has that customer facing quality that can work and he's got the intelligence and he, and he, you know, he codes now he's getting a joint degree, a dual degree between business and computer science. So he has kind of both sides of the brain that are occupied towards this. He just doesn't want to do solely one thing or the other. Um, and so we had that conversation recently and I told him, you know, you're, if, if you want to do this, you're going to have to go, uh, you're probably going to end up having to go into a situation like mine, or you're going to have to spend a couple of years doing just one or the other, and then switch over to the, mm. to, to the opposite. Um, it's hard to find a situation like mine. It is. Um, yeah. I, I think at this point in time, developer evangelists, uh, like we were talking about earlier, it, it's, um, we haven't figured out where our value is inside of an organization. So, and we haven't figured out how to sell ourselves inside of that organization in order to make sure that the org knows that we are a requirement and not just a nice to have. Um, and so to him, I said, Hey, listen, we can have this conversation and I will guide you in the way that you, um, that I think might work for you. Uh, but, you know, understand that everybody, regardless of what career they're in, when they get out of college, they are doing the worst possible thing, the last thing they want to do. And they're going to be doing that for a couple of years. <laughs> Damn right. <laughs> yeah, tech support. Uh, yeah, no. Exactly. <laughs> Great advice. Hey, man, I, tech support has uh, been the start of many successful careers, and I think it makes you a left brain, right brain kind of person. So. I'm not complaining. I I said I was always happy I started with support because that means I never have to go back to get. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you know, one thing I would say is that um, I I recommend anybody who goes into sales or any kind of sales oriented job. I recommend they spend six to 12 months as a waiter. Oh, yeah. I think customer service of some ilk should be required. Yes. Mm hmm. It is for almost. It is for everybody I used to hire into an internship. 
because I wanted them to prove that they could deal with the general public under extreme duress. And there is no greater duress than that. Than that. (laughs) Speaking of duress, Amy, I'm sure you have a question up your sleeve. Oh, I do. Um, Considering, yeah, that's a great transition to make our guests feel like they're under duress. But (laughs) maybe, maybe. Um, So we always like to keep it positive here. But our favorite question to ask to wrap things up is, well, at least my favorite question, um, is if you were counseling somebody and, and, wanted them not to make the same mistakes you had, what would you tell them never, ever do this again? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a tough question. Um, <laughs> such a long list. <laughs> <laughs> never compromise on what you want. Uh, and the reason why I say that is because I, uh, I've, I've tried my entire life to just do the things that I like to do. Granted, like I said earlier, sometimes you get out of college, you've got to do some things that you don't like to do, like being a waiter, for instance, um, which <laughs> I was for two years. But, um, but to me, that, that kind of dovetails into understand your own value and your own worth. Don't be cocky about it. But, uh, but if you want to achieve certain goals and you know somebody else wants to achieve something different, for instance, that first that first business development job I took, say, yes, I will do the thing you want me to do if you let me do the thing that I want to do. And if they want you bad enough, they are going to make some wiggle room. They're going to make it okay to do this thing that you want to try. And honestly, um, you know, if they're willing to hire you, then they're willing to hire you with some conditions attached to it. So, so, so Kurt, what's the mistake there? Not asking for what you want as well or exactly, not taking the job? Exactly. Okay. A lot of people, a lot of people will not ask for what they want. And, um, and if you don't ask, you're never going to get it. I think that's so true. And often you find that that's, that really does lead to that bitterness and those most vociferous of complaints. But I, I completely wholeheartedly agree. You have to ask because the worst you can hear is no. Exactly. And then, and then you just have another decision to make. You have a decision to make of, oh, do I need this job, um, even though it's not exactly the way I want it to be. Um, but that's a decision that you should be making as opposed to just assuming that they understand what your needs are. And that's, that's not just about work. That's kind of about life. It's about relationships. It's about you know, your friends. It's about you know, every single thing that's in your life. And I've, I have made the mistake where I didn't ask for the things that I wanted um, and I obviously did not get them. And I was incredibly upset about it and hurt. And it was just one of those things where looking back on it, I had misplaced anger because really it was me. Nobody knew what I wanted but me. I didn't say anything. And if I didn't speak up, then how could they know that they were doing it wrong? Absolutely. Yeah, that, that hits home really well. Well, well, Kurt, um, I have to say, really love having you on as a guest, uh, especially love your message of kind of the balance of skills that it takes to be successful in this industry. You're saying for, for learning more programming, study English, for, for learning to be a good salesman, go be a waiter. Uh, that hits home for our geek whispers, I'm sure, in the non-linear career path. So if people want to know more of your story and interact with you online, uh, where, they can, where can they find you? Um, they can find me on um, they can find me on Twitter at TimeSync T I M E S Y N C because I sync so much of my time into video games, um, <laughs> and uh, uh, or you can find me at Built.io uh, Kurt at Built.io 
is my email address. Um, or you can just Google Kurt Collins. I guarantee you I'm the only black Kurt Collins in the Bay Area that you will find. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's fantastic. Well, we really appreciate you being on. Highly recommend Geek Whispers and listeners to follow Kurt and stay in touch. And with that, we had another episode of the Geek Whispers. Over and out. You've been listening to the Geek Whispers. Tune in on iTunes or Stitcher for regular stories of technology careers, cultures, and lives. Share it with a friend or invite us to an event through our website, geek-whispers.com. Find us on Twitter at geek underscore whispers, Jay Troyer, MJ Brender, and Coms Ninja. Thanks for listening. Let's do it. Ready, set. Let's do it. And welcome. Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. Got to get yourself pumped up, John. No way. <clears throat> la, 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 la. All good.